You're listening to the GovFuture podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the August 17th, 2023 Gov Future Forum DC event. We'll hear how AI, automation, and big data analytics are impacting civilian and defense agencies. On the panel were Ayodel Okeowo, Director of Intergovernmental Affairs at the CHIPS Program Office, Captain Patrick M. Thompson, Director of Infrastructure for the U.S. Coast Guard C5I Service Center, and Gopa Nair, GSA TTS Center of Excellence, Innovation Adoption Lead. Stay tuned. I'm an executive director here at the Future Forum, and I am very excited, like I said, to be moderating. Oh, actually, I'm going to switch that. There we go. Yeah, that'll be a little easier. So I'm excited to be moderating this conference on AI, automation, and data. So maybe we'll get started, and Gopal will start with you, to just take a minute or so to introduce yourself to the audience and share one fun fact about yourself. I will start with a fun fact. All right. Um, I carry newspapers. I still subscribe print copies of newspapers. And the reason is I was I was born and brought up in India, and that was the only way we could get information. So every day morning, I had a habit of reading newspapers, print copies. So I still carry one. Um, my name is Gopal Nair, um, one of the innovation adoption leads within GSS Technology Transformation Services and COE. Our role is to help agencies enhance their capabilities, especially my role is in the intelligent automation space. Um, so we help them understand what is the right technology out there and also help them scale across their enterprise. That's my primary role. My expertise is in intelligent automation as well as AI and product management. Um, and as you know, COE is a part of GSA. Again, our mission is IT modernization, and we go across federal agencies and support them to accelerate the IT modernization. And that's that's about me. All right, great. Thanks, Kathleen. Um, great to be here. My name is Ayadeli. I'm a director of intergovernmental affairs at the CHIPS program office at the Department of Commerce. I'll start with a fun fact as well, too. Um, I was born in uh, Lusaka, Zambia. We immigrated to the United States uh, when I was seven years old. We lived all over the country, but I think one of my most memorable homes was in Astoria, Oregon, where we lived in the same kind of community uh, where the Goonies was filmed, uh, where uh, Free Willy was filmed as well. And my younger siblings went to uh, the elementary school where kindergarten cop was great area yeah yeah so we were very sad when we left in Virginia but everything everything worked out um so the church program office um is you know very new it's effectively a startup within the government um as a result of the Chips of Science Act of 2022 uh, that was uh passed on a bipartisan basis by Congress assigned uh uh, and enacted uh, by President Biden in August of last year, which just passed uh, the one-year anniversary. Uh, we are tasked with um, reshoring uh, the semiconductor industry uh, domestically. Um, most of you uh, know uh, really well that uh, when it comes to uh, semiconductors, generally speaking, we produce about 12% uh, worldwide as a country. Uh, when it comes to the most leading edge ships, we produce uh, 0%. Um, some of you may have had issues, you know, purchasing a new vehicle during the pandemic or consumer electronics. Um, and now, you know, I kind of consider this hot AI summer where, you know, everyone wants to talk about this, um, that, that kind of, those kind of emerging technologies, uh, the backbone of those technologies are uh, semiconductors. And so from an economic security standpoint, from a national security standpoint, uh, we have an imperative to uh, ensure that we don't experience those kind of uh, choke points from a global supply chain standpoint, um, and that we're not only leading on the design and research and development of these chips, but we're also able to produce them and manufacture them uh, to protect our uh, security uh, moving forward. Um, so excited to see all that, you know, the uh, the public sector and the private sector um, have done in the years since we uh, enacted the Chips of Science Act. 
Uh, we're excited to continue to mobilize uh, capital to to solve this uh, issue moving forward um, and to to help foster the environment that uh, that allows emerging critical technologies like AI uh, to prosper in the future. So thank you for being here. Hi, I'm uh, Kevin Patrick Thompson. I, uh, I, I've been in the Coast Guard for about almost 30 years now, so I've uh, had a lot of different uh, jobs. I've uh, been on a couple of ships. I, uh, I was actually at Ground Zero for 9-11. I worked on our new acquisition programs uh, called the Deep Water Program for building out all new ships and aircraft after that. I was uh, one of the first uh, Battle Watch captains up at U.S. Cyber Command, so when that was get, first getting stood up and uh, and working out and then i actually went down to the coast guard and helped stand up our coast guard cyber command and uh, lately i've been working in our uh, it and infrastructure uh, group in the coast guard and, and really trying to move uh, a lot of our stuff into the cloud and modernize and uh, get get out new you know satellite communication systems and modernize all of our networks and and uh, at the at the end of a lot of these uh, modernization efforts you know one of our goals is to start leveraging the data we already have and, and uh, all these AI and data analytics tools which is probably what we're here to discuss today so that's that's kind of our ultimate goal um, fun fact I you know I, outside of uh, work I, I play a lot of tennis I, I compete and do all sorts of tournaments and. Uh, a lot of times I don't really tell people what I do for work. I like, oh, IT project management or something, or, you know, I do work for the government. And, uh, you know, so one of my favorite things is actually figure out that, like, one of the people I'm playing is actually someone's office I'm going to be at someday, you know? So I, I played, I think, uh, you know, one guy was like, you know, White House chief of staff or something, right? And, you know, <laughs> show up, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm at the meeting of the White House. Actually. So I, I got to figure out how I can get, like, just, like, knock on his door and walk in. And, like, so it's one of my, my fun things I like to try to do is kind of surprise people where they're like they see me in a uniform and they're like <laughs> completely out of context so uh, like that like that's one of my fun things i like to try to do if i can that is fun and sometimes when i see people outside of the context i know them in i'm very confused i'm like i know you and i cannot place them so that's great i always love the fun facts um well okay gopa let's start with you so this is all about AI automation and data. And I love these panel discussions because we're able to bring such diverse backgrounds and different agencies to the table to have these discussions. So specifically for you, what challenges have you seen when it comes to AI adoption in the government? Um, Kathleen, thank you for that question. And I want to stress on the word adoption here. Um, what we see is a lot of people can create models and a lot of models are already existing out there. The key is how do you adopt it and scale it across government? And I want to share three, three things based on our experience. The number one, identifying the right use case with the right technology. And I would like to bring Einstein's example. If you had one hour to solve a problem, it would take 55 minutes to understand what it is and five minutes to solve. Similarly, in any AI project, please take time to understand what is the right use case and what is the right technology. When I say right technology, um, we, in the intelligent automation space, we span from RPA to AI. So we have the opportunity to see all these different types of tools. But at the same time, there's a danger wherein because you have a hammer, whatever appears is a nail. Uh, for example, because you have an RPA tool, Every problem becomes an RPA solution. Or you have an AI model, every problem becomes an AI solution. So that is where uh, what we are trying to say here is identify the right use case and spend some time in analyzing what is the right tool for this. So that is the first step we spend a lot of time in because uh, sometimes, as you know, you might you can just do a Python code and create an automation. You don't need an RPA thing. But at the same time, there will be situations where you need an RPA, which will be nice to have an RPA one rather than go for a complex AI model. So that analysis is a fundamental and most important one in this uh, in this whole space of what are the challenges we see in adoption or doing it right away. The second one, everybody knows this, data is the key, right? And having the right data, first of all, Second one, the quality of data. And um, the way we, we kind of mitigate this is before we 
start a project, we have an intake process and we have created a checklist so that we can understand, oh, this problem is a good solution for this model. The model is there, problem is there. You have the data. Oh, we have data. Yes, here you go. And we had a situation where you saw we got data and images, but the images quality was not good for the model. So those type of things to make sure that the data quality and of course, as you all know, that for any AI, you need the quantity too. Um, sometimes upfront checking all this will, will solve a lot of headaches down the line. Number three, I'll, I'll stop here with this. The most important and critical thing is stakeholder alignment in this. What I mean by this is when, when an data folks create a solution and want to implement it or onboard it into an infrastructure side, you should have the buy-in from the IT department. Or, for example, in this case, maybe it's cloud business office. Now, there is, should be a coordination and facilitation among all these stakeholders. The way we do it, we bring the CEO shop, the CEOs, the CISOs, as well as the cloud folks, everybody together, and facilitate that meeting as why we are doing this so that everybody's on board. That stakeholder alignment, um, making sure what is the data platform because a lot of CEO, CEOs have data platforms on their own. So making sure that the right platform, the buy-in, and now if you have something, the cloud people should be allowing you to put it on cloud. So those are some of the practical things you should be upfront thinking about and making sure whoever are the stakeholders involved, they are all on the table so that you can have a discussion and make sure they are aligned. And that is a key part. So I would stop with this, like there are still many things which you see as challenges, but these are, if you can have the data, if you have spent time in identifying the cases, and if you have your stakeholders, half the battle is won. And one more thing I would encourage is to do pilots. Don't just try to push something in production, um, because in the space of AI, what we are seeing is there's a lot to learn, be humble, um, because you might be the best data scientist, um, but the model might behave differently in different environments. So making sure that that humility is also there um, is important. That's what, what we have experienced. Um, yeah, so many things in that response. And we always say, you know, AI is not the right solution to every single problem. So make sure you understand that sometimes intelligent automation, sometimes just straight up automation, is the right solution and it's gonna be cheaper and quicker and you can do it a lot faster. So really be honest and be asking those questions. So I love that you said that. And then Ayodele, the next question's for you. So in case uh, the audience is not familiar, we do also have a GovFuture podcast and we were fortunate enough to interview your colleague, Adrian, Adrian Elrod. So if you're interested in learning more about the CHIPS program in general, I encourage you to listen to that podcast. But specifically for you, how does the CHIPS program support research and development initiatives to foster technological advancements and maintain that competitiveness in the global market? Absolutely. That's a great question. You know, I, I touched on the uh, imperative when it comes to the uh, manufacturing of the CHIPS, uh, but the research and development uh, innovation ecosystem is uh, just as important, if not more important. Um, you know, we're not in our office, in our one-year-old office in the business of necessarily deploying these AI models. Uh, but we understand that these emerging technologies are critical moving forward. And so when we look at the CHIPS program office and the $52 billion that we're responsible for administering, 39 billion of that is for manufacturing incentives that are going to go to industry and to uh, fab projects and supply chain projects around the country. But 11 billion of that is allocated for research and development um, efforts. And I'm going to speak about one uh, piece of that uh, research and development program, um, but I will just provide a really brief overview of the entire program. And so, like I said, it's a pot of money, $11 billion, to ensure that we maintain and strengthen our leadership um, on uh, innovation and research and development. We don't necessarily produce the chips anymore, but we still design them, the companies, the mines, not just for semiconductors, but for emerging technologies, for critical material sciences, for uh, quantum computing. Those are still here domestically, and we want to continue to foster um, that kind of innovation. And so the four components of this research and development program are 
uh, a national advanced uh, packaging and manufacturing program. As the chips get smaller, we try to keep up with Moore's law. Uh, we have to innovate and start to stack in a 3D uh, sense rather than trying to continue to, to shrink and shrink so we're at the nano atomic level. Uh, we're also going to try to uh, 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 stand up uh, up to three manufacturing USA institutes. Uh, we have about 17 of them across the country right now. Um, these are just distributed uh, industry, public, private. Uh, we want to build out three more of those. Um, we also want to continue to innovate uh, with metrology and the measurement sciences, which are key to, again, trying to keep up with uh, more slide and these technologies. And then what we would consider as the focal point is the National Semiconductor Technology Center. This is going to be a public-private consortium. Uh, it's very ambitious. You know, the United States has tried this before, but the scale of the NSTC uh, is unprecedented. And so this is going to be an effort to mitigate some of the gaps that we see uh, when it comes to taking innovations from the lab to the fab and uh, circumventing what the so-called value debt with innovations, with new products, uh, with emerging technologies to make sure that, that we can take a great idea from just an idea uh, to the commercial market. And so that's really important when it comes to uh, uh, areas like artificial intelligence, because, you know, again, everyone is thinking about this, everyone is talking about this. Um, you know, the greatest minds in the world are here domestically, um, not just uh, building these models, but also deploying them in a commercial sense. It's up to us now to figure out how we can provide that support to scale these efforts uh, in a way that, you know, does at the forefront mitigate risk and protect uh, user safety and security, but also unleash some of the opportunities that artificial intelligence can provide. And we really do view that $11 billion investment as the facilitator uh, for that uh, level of, uh, of uh, continued innovation and development of these uh, critical emerging technologies. And so, um, you know, Kathy mentioned that the, the podcast, we always encourage everyone to go to our chips.gov website because we have a lot of information there. You know, chips is um, housed at the Depar Department of Commerce, but it's within the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And at NIST, uh, they are doing so much work um, on uh, artificial intelligence, you know, they are responsible for the uh, National AI Advisory uh, Committee uh, for administering uh, that cohort and also producing reports. Uh, we've also produced a um, AI risk management framework, which was released at the, at the beginning of this year. Uh, I think we put out our first report uh, uh, in June, uh, you know, this is not my opinion, but we've heard from the industry but that this is the goal, considered the gold standard as far as uh, organizations being able to use a framework to help them, again, mitigate risks as they uh, work to deploy this in a uh, not just effective way, but in a way that makes sense for uh, different kinds of organizations. So, um, you know, we, we, we care a lot about you know, rebuilding the manufacturing muscle domestically, but um, like I said, uh, facilitating innovation and continued research and development is, is hugely important um, when it comes to uh, emerging technologies like AI. That's great. Also, you really piqued our interest at this innovation lab or whatever. So can, you, can you elaborate on that? Do you have a deadline, like a time frame for when that's going to be open and where is it going to be? That's a, those are great questions. Um, we are... We are <laughs> We're working to, to staff up our R&D team um, and, you know, build out this operation at the same time as we build out the team that's facilitating the manufacturing side. And so, you know, we, we are, we're effectively a startup, like I said, and we've released a strategy paper as far as the NSTC. Um, we are looking at the next year or so. Uh, for uh, more information as far as uh, like governance structure. I think something that's really important about this, we want the NSTC to be viewed as a center of excellence uh, nationally. Um, it's going to be different from uh, previous iterations of this kind of public-private semiconductor consortium because it's going to be distributed. Um, we obviously have NIST headquarters in Gaithersburg. We have a satellite site in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Uh, but we want this to take advantage of uh, not just uh, the public uh, public sector, but the private sector as well. Um, uh, customers and consumers of semiconductors, um, workforce representatives, you know, every single key stakeholder you can think of when it comes to the semiconductor ecosystem. And so a uh, part of our lear learnings, we put out RFIs and things like that, is that there is a um, desire for this to be uh, distributed across the country. 
And so we're working uh, to build out that governance structure so that, you know, uh, no state or locality has improper uh, benefits compared to or access to this opportunity compared to other uh, sites. We have a uh, industry advisory council that advises the secretary on the R&D program, um, and they're going to help uh, put together a selection committee, which was announced uh, pretty recently, and they're going to uh, bring on a uh, effectively CEO of the new NSTC. And so we want this to be really viewed as independent. You know, some people love the government, some people don't love the government. Uh, and we want to ensure that, you know, the level of investment that we're placing uh, in this new uh, consortium, um, it, it does take us to our goal of uh, really, you know, corralling the the, the um, expertise around the country and being that center of excellence. So we're really excited about it. Awesome. So basically you're saying stay tuned and we will. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> Patrick, the next question's for you. And we also had Patrick on a Go Future podcast as well. Really great discussion. He recommended some books, which I did read right after the podcast. So I'm not going to tell you which books that you can listen. Uh, so for you, you know, I mean, we always talk about data. Data is being created every single day. The volume of it has just grown tremendously. So how is the federal government and specifically the Coast Guard addressing concerns regarding data privacy and data security in this era of increased data collection and utilization? So uh, thanks for that question. Um, I'm probably going to approach it a little bit differently. Uh, first, I want to just you know, thank you for coming because that, that was a great talk. Uh, just knowing that you know, the government is, is working towards these things. You know, I would say one of the, the biggest problems we have in modernizing is, is this lack of of being able to buy hardware. Almost every time I do a procurement now for any type of IT systems, the, the delays are are crazy. I mean, you know, some nine months would be fast. Yeah. You know, obviously I'm buying major amounts of hardware at, at a large scale, but uh it's it's interesting is that uh, since COVID, just to observe that delay has um has had a huge impact on our ability to modernize. You know, I, I had a, you know, a personally, I was, you know, I kind of, I, I noticed it at work and I didn't quite know. I actually went down to a, a car dealer down in Chantilly. I went to the Toyota dealer and I was like, I walked in, I was just kind of curious, you know, what, what new Toyotas they have? And I, and then, and, and, you know, the salesman walked up to me and he said, we have none. <laughs> and I'm like, you have no new cars? He's like, he looks at me straight in the eyes, like zero. I was like, what are you guys doing here, right? Like, like I, I, that was, I mean, I, I knew at work there was a chip shortage. I knew it was a problem, but I don't think I quite understood until I was at like, you know, DMV is a pretty big area of the United States. Lots of people are here, lots of people with a lot of money and you have car dealerships with zero cars because they can't, because of the chip shortage. That, that really hit home for me. So it's, it can't stress enough how, how important that program is and, and to our future of modernization. Um, so from the, the, you know, how are we improving data privacy and security? Um, I'll, I'll take it from a little bit different direction. You know, when I was up at U.S. Cyber and then I stood up the Coast Guard's, you know, Cyber Command, um, one of the things I, I noticed is that the government has all the tools to, you know, secure their enterprise, right? Um, but just like industry, we make mistakes all the time. But the question is, you know, why? Why, 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 why are things misconfigured? You know, like, you know, why is this happening? Why are machines not getting patched? Um, you know, why, why, why is this happening, right? And, and a lot of times when I when I kind of went in and tried to analyze and you know ask these in the you know the after action reports, you know the the the, the ten levels of but why, but why they're like, oh, you know, oh we got patched, we got hacked, oh why, oh because it it wasn't you know, the machine wasn't patched, okay, but but why wasn't it patched? And it was like, well, you know the you know, <laughs> you know the technician didn't patch it. I'm like, okay, well why why did the technician not? You know, like get going down. You know, a lot of times I, I figured out sometimes, you know, we had a few different reasons. One was at a high level, you know, when you look at the sea of contracts that the government has to, to deliver anything, you end up with, you know, multiple vendors who are responsible. And, you know, why why did that happen? Right. It's like, well, we we had a vision of, you know, we wanted to deliver this service. So we hired someone to do the service. We went out with an RRP and they came in, they delivered the service. And, you know, over time, I, what I've seen is that everything you deliver in the government requires a huge amount of integration across different areas. And, and you really can't have too many different, you know, hands in the pot, right? You have to have kind of a, a single vendor who's responsible to deliver that service. Um, when you're, when you're doing that with on-prem services, 
it just gets hard and, and, and complicated. And I, and I think, you know, one of the ways that we can improve that is to, to move to the cloud, move to integrated models. You know, and so instead of having to buy a physical server and wait nine months for that thing to get delivered and installed, you know, you can just, you know, spin up a virtual server. You know, if you don't need something, you can turn it down. It, it, that, that flexibility of being able to deliver things quickly at scale to, to meet your needs um, is, is very valuable. Um, being able to have you know a, a trusted uh, you know single entity that uh, you know ensures that these things are configured and patched is super important. Having a single dashboard where you can see that those things are getting done, leveraging you know the automated tools that exist in a lot of these cloud environments without having to you know pay for and install some service that takes you know months to deliver and configure, just using the ones that are already there, uh, that has a huge impact on, on delivering things securely. Um, so if you look at like a lot of our a lot of our internal plans on how we're going to get to you know AI data analytics, um, you know that a lot of them are are based on like a, a cloud first model. Is that we 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 need to get these legacy uh, tools and systems we have into the cloud, get them modernized, get them on modern database backends, and start to leverage um, more you know, SaaS solutions on, on, on for data analytics platforms instead of installing stuff uh, on-prem ourselves you know i think at the beginning there was a there was a thought well maybe there's a couple things that we can move to the cloud and then you know i think the the mindset is starting to shift from uh, instead of a, a couple things that we can move to cloud that like why can't we you know what what is what has to stay on-prem and then why, why does it why does it have to stay on-prem and, and i think that answer is you know you know, especially after we, we moved to office 365 and people are realizing like you know all of my data is in the cloud and uh, and you know the the value proposition of being able to work remotely, being able to have your data like sitting on your your you know your iPhone and iPad with you twenty four seven. Yeah, we we had all sorts of issues with email going down and, and problems we had in the past of, of making those things work, and uh, you know those problems have kind of diminished and gone away. I think you know the other thing that we're seeing is when you go to more SaaS solutions is. <clears throat> the vendors can quickly iterate. Like every two weeks, you get a little bit different improvement. Some people don't even notice those improvements, right? Like, you know, if you if you used Office, you know, 365 for the last few years, you had me notice the little micro improvements that they've been adding to the service. You just and the and, you know, I didn't have to go out and train my users on what they were. They just they kind of evolved, right? And <clears throat> you can do that when you're in a cloud service and, and, and uh, in, a, in a much faster way than the government could ever do it on prem. We, we would go through some, you know, convoluted, you know, configuration management process. A thousand people who don't really understand the system would vote or not vote on it. Some guy is out of the office for a few weeks so the vote, vote gets held up, right? <laughs> the, uh, when, you, when you go to a SaaS solution, that's, you know, that a lot of that um, kind of goes away and changes and, and, I think it's for the better. You know, I, I, you know, many times I remember at a meeting we we talked about, you know, why why are these things not getting patched? It's like, well, we have to go through our configuration management process. We have to test things. We have to do this, with the, and then finally, at one point, one of the the senior execs in the in the meeting, you know, the, asked the simple question. He like turned to the guys, like, "How long have you worked here?" And it was like, you know, ten years. He's like, "When's the last time, you know, you had a Microsoft patch?" And one of our systems, you know, wouldn't work because the Microsoft patch was, you know, not good or something. And he was like, oh, eight years ago, like it was this one time. And, and he's like, well, what happened? He's like, well, we rolled it out to, you know, 1% of the users and we realized there's a problem. So we rolled it back. And I'm like, why, why do we have, why, why don't we just get the patch out there? You know, like the day after it's released, roll it out to like 1% of the users, wait a day or two, and then just, you know, actually get it out there, you know, faster because this, you know, 30, 60 day uh, time frame for where you're getting patches out is, is killing us, right? You're, you're never going to, you know, we're not worried about zero days. We're about like plus 90 days, right? Like you're, 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 you're always off um, by a scale. So I think that, you know, those kinds of things that we're doing to improve security is, is getting to the cloud, using more SASing solutions. Um, you know, we, I think we know we, the government are, are not, Good at maintaining things on prem at, at a level that you know Amazon is or, or um, you know the, the, any of the big big five um, providers, and uh, so that I think that's one of the one of the ways we're we're doing that. I think the second thing is uh, governmental focus. You know when when you're no longer worried about 
buying the the servers and getting them racked and stacked and 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 you know all of that you know diminishing source of supply you're not spending your time dealing with the infrastructure you can refocus your team on looking at you know the configuration management did, did we do this correctly having having teams go in and, and do that analysis and uh you know one of the great things with automation is that we see something that's wrong we can automate a script to check for that and present it to us on a dashboard on a regular reoccurring basis and that's one of the greatest ways where you you can ensure security and serve privacy is that you you have teams that are that are focused on that piece of it and not on the acquisition and contracting and and uh, you know, this this hard drive broke in the server and we got to fly out a team to to deal with it right that that's painful um so that i think that's uh that, that's where we're, we're really focused at times it's trying to refocus our our energies off of the thing i call it commodity it the, the things that industry is really good at let industry do those things and, and focus the government on the things that the, the government needs to, to focus on said so much again in your response. Uh, the few takeaways I have from that is, yes, automation can help you do more with the same amount of resources, right? Everybody seems resource trapped, whether that's people, money, time, whatever it is. Also, you talked about iteration and moving fast. And sometimes it's that waterfall versus agile mindset. And if you have this waterfall mindset and it's taking months, years, I don't know. <laughs> That's not okay when it comes to technology, especially emerging technology. So really wonderful. I have more questions, but I do want to open this up to the audience. So we have about 15 or so minutes that we can take some questions. Does anybody have any? Otherwise, I'm happy to keep asking. Okay. The effort you're talking about with chips, especially, reminds me of the dual use that we had uh, manufacturing automation, PLM, trying to get people to, in the industry for government and commercial to use the best technologies for so, uh, virtual rapid prototyping. Oh, okay, sorry. So I assume that you're going to have the same kind of thing that to kind of make sure if you want this to happen, you have to find a way to get people like you're talking today to, be able to understand the technologies, the, the appropriate technologies, and to be able to grab onto it because right now it's People use AIs, you know, one word for everything. And and with chips, it's manufacturing, it's it's uh all those those kind of concepts. So I assume there may be some kind of a, a approach to performing, having access to information that could be published to help the the tier, the primes, the subs, and the, the ones down to understand, first of all, realistically what it is and allows them to more more likely reach the outcome. So is there going to be some kind of coordinated effort to inform and, and bring the knowledge level up from the uh, the communities? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We are, we view this as uh, sort of like a transformative effort, um, something that hasn't necessarily been done before, um, at least from a government, federal government perspective. Uh, but with that said, there is a lot of existing infrastructure and efforts that we are leading into. And so, um, you may be familiar with uh, the uh, the MEPs that we have across the country. Uh, we, you know, we're leveraging um, those uh, those MEPs uh, not just based on the uh, networks that they facilitate from like a local and regional standpoint, but also what they're hearing from small businesses, medium sized enterprises, um, not just in manufacturing and innovation efforts, but um, very specific to um, efforts within the chips uh, efforts or chips uh, implementation. So we want to leverage those MEPs. Um, we also uh, are leveraging the efforts of uh, the National Science Foundation uh, who have uh, led on building these public-private uh, uh, consortiums. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's workforce or facilitating small and medium-sized businesses or or what have you, or, you know, uh, interfacing with academia. Um, NSF um, has worked with industry for a very long time. Um, they're a key part of uh, this program implementation. Uh, when we look at the Department of Commerce, we have, at this point, probably the lion's share um, of the Appropriated Chips and Science uh, Act funding. Um, the act itself is for about $280 billion, uh, but not all of that $280 billion was uh, appropriate or was authorized. Um, so, you know, the, the CHIPS program office of the Department of Commerce got about $52 billion. Uh, Department of Commerce through the uh, Economic Development Administration got um, 
think it was 500 million through the omnibus at the end of last year for uh, tech hubs and recompete pilot programs, which uh, communities are using to foster their local and regional innovation ecosystems. Uh, but, you know, uh, National Telecommunications and Information Administration got uh, 1.5 billion for, uh, you know, wireless um, efforts um, around uh, the semiconductor industry. Uh, so the State Department got, I think, about $500 million. Department of Defense got funding. Uh, National Science Foundation got funding as well. And so we are working hard on external outreach engagement and implementation, but we're also working uh, to coordinate and align, which is sometimes a struggle within the federal government, uh, but to make sure that as we deploy this program, uh, that we are staying in sync with our uh, federal partners and working with some of that established infrastructure in those MEPs, in those manufacturing USA institutes, in those uh, industry and academia consortiums that have been working together on some of the efforts that you already mentioned. So we really want do want to lead into that. So, Gopa, I want to pull thread that, that you put up that actually kind of came up at, throughout the conversation. So towards the beginning, you were talking about the importance of incorporating the right amount of research and analysis and understanding of a problem. Now, in our space, context is everything. And so that can, you know, there are cases in government that it's, that it's infamous for where you know, especially when you look at the, the waterfall kind of history of doing work where we want to do analysis for years before ever getting on to actual delivery. I know that's not your intent, but the question is, what is that right delta? Like, what's the right type of analysis? What, what, how do you properly identify the problem? And how do you identify it? How do you know when you've got enough to then say, we need to move forward? Because there's also the fail, there's also the concept of learn fast and innovate quickly. And you spoke to the pilot as well. And I think that leads a little bit towards what Patrick was trying to speak towards of how do we iterate more quickly? So that's why I thought. Just combine thread there. Um, thank you for the question. I think um, you cannot continue research endlessly um, to find the right problem or the right solution, right? I think that's that's a fair. But I think that is where the expertise and understanding comes in. One is the expertise from the industry. We at COE partner with the industry uh, to make sure we get the best from them too. So the expertise combined with the business knowledge when you have that combination, it accelerates that process of identifying what it is, number one. Number two, I think when in doubt, experiment, meaning you use, there are some areas where you're pretty clear, oh, this is going to work, but there are some areas nobody can predict anything. Can we, that's where we kind of encourage or we do pilots. We do quick pilots to understand what level of, what is the right tool and the right technology here. There are some things which are very straightforward, already proven, which is out there, other agencies have used, rely on, on that. So, for example, the use case inventory, which has already been published in various areas, whether it is RP, whether it is AI, the different areas where already the use case inventory is published. So you can see that. Plus, um, you also have the technology providers providing some solutions. Um, look at that. So I would say the expertise, the technology, with experimentation should be able to help you accelerate that process of understanding what's the right use case for the right problem. Anybody else have questions? Uh, Christine Sani with Civil Corp or Governance Innovation Company headquartered up North Bethesda. Um, so really excited to, to listening to uh, the initiatives here. My question is maybe for all three of you, in reference to um, uh, industry working with the government through pilots, is the best approach, would you say, to look at CRADAS for testing service agreements, or how would you approach uh, government with pilots? I'm not aware of that program, um, but the way I think from, from a COE standpoint, we conduct industry days. I think that's where we bring in um, other folks who are there, but that is where we get this exchange and we kind of see what is out there and what we have to offer. So that is one area how we do that. Now, I will just mention um, the NAIAC that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, they, they put out a, a, through NIST, put out a report uh, earlier this year. Uh, we also established a, a public working group 
um, to assist uh, organizations with deployment. Um, and this sort of no dovetails with um, the, the risk management framework for AI that I um, alluded to a little bit earlier. Uh, and so the goal is to, um, you know, map out the, um, the the rules of the road, if you rules of the road, if you will, um, as far as um, you know, secure, effective, uh, uh, safe um, AI deployment. And so I, I would I would uh, see if uh, those resources are useful um, in your in your efforts and for your organization. Um, and, you know, always happy to, you know, NIST does a lot of, you know, really cool stuff and, you know, uh, we put out, you know, resources that I actually lose track of on a daily basis. And so we're always happy to, to uh, help kind of connect the dots and uh, point in the right direction. So the, uh, the Coast Guard, like many organizations, has an R&D element, the uh, Research Develop Center, ours up in, uh, you know, Connecticut. Um, so I, I, you know, it's interesting is that you know there's certain technologies that lend themselves better to get, having an R and D you know evaluation first, um, you know, in, in particular in their maturity, and um, you know that there's a little bit of a selection process that happens, and which pro which of the limited resources they're going to spend uh, that year on the, on those process. I think you know just getting getting together with them, kind of explaining you know what you are, how mature your technology is, other agencies that are already using it um, that might help help in kind of landing on where you fall. Like we we had uh, you know Starlink is a new technology that uh, yeah, at the time you know a couple of years ago, a few years ago maybe it wasn't one hundred percent mature in there, but we gone up through our R&D center and said, hey, uh, take a look at this, you know, put this uh, you know on some of the unique situations the Coast Guard has. You know, they, <clears throat> one of the things, you know, the, the Coast Guard is obviously a maritime element that is ships at sea and aircraft, but that really is a very small percentage of the humans that are out there doing the work. There's a huge amount of back office support that manages all of that. You know, I think we have, you know, our, you take a look at our, you know, our 40 or so capital cutters. It's only two, like 2,000 out of a 65,000 person organization that are on those ships, right? Um, obviously, have lots of other smaller ships and aircraft that you know, have people on it, but organizationally, it's a very small amount of people who are truly the the, the pointy spear. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the the mobility case for us is is uh, you know an extreme one for them. Like they that small group can't communicate, right? They can't communicate really well. They definitely don't uh, work well in a cloud environment where there's low latency requirements and whatnot, right? And, and Starlink, if it worked, would would really satisfy a lot of what they did. So the R and D center went out and looked at you know put a ship you know way up in the high latitude you know, latitudes up in you know past Alaska and, and the Straits and down in Antarctica and you know <clears throat> have that put it on you know aircraft that are moving quickly and put put it on like things that are unique to, you know, Coast Guard operations and, um, you know, their, their analysis basically proved that it worked really well. And they're, they're also, their business analysis was that they were putting more and more satellites up in space and it was improving pretty much every month, right? So um, so we we leveraged that analysis to justify why we want to go with that technology. And we've, we've put that on a, almost all of our capital cutters. We're about 50% of the way through our, our big, uh, you know, 200 foot and above, you know, cutters, ships, and uh, we'll probably be done here in October outfitting them with that. So that really, what that does is you now you have a huge high bandwidth pipe to what is, you know, your sensor platform, your, your command and control, you know, elements, being able to, for them to, uh, to do their work really well, but it, there's also a retention value for us. You know, going to sea is hard, right? You 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 can't talk to your family. You can't, you know, younger generation is you know they, they can't get on social media for like five minutes, like they're dying, right? Next, so they, they have no appetite to join the Coast Guard and, and be offline for for that period. Um, so this has kind of been transformative, and you know they, you know they can do their banking, they can check their personal email, they can get on social media, um, and and as of this month, we're actually uh, turning on uh, Teams calling for them, so they can basically call home and, and talk to friends and family. Yeah. So yeah, there's a huge retention piece of that, but there's also a a huge improvement for our uh, our operations, and and that came through like an R and D center kind of initiative, proving out that. Commercial technology is mature. It's good for us, and that we can we can then move forward with it. You know, do you find that being connected, allowing the people at sea so far away to be connected, helps with retention and helps with mental health and helps with you know 
people wanting to stay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's kind of wild to hear the stories. You know, like you you kind of you say, oh, that must be hard. But you don't really realize like why it's hard. Like, like we had a member come to us and say, hey, you know, I uh, my bank for whatever reason, security or otherwise, decided to close my checking account and move it over to a new checking account number. And you're like, oh. So in their mind, the bank like did a good job. They did a security practice that kind of ensured because the account got compromised. They saw like bad checks getting, you know, so they stopped it, right? Um, what happened was those this car payments weren't getting processed, right? So <laughs> he came back and his car got repossessed. He happened to have his house broken into, right? And and you know, so he had all these like, and he started to like get bad bad credit history because like car guy so because they're gone for you know four months at a time right so those kind of things can happen but you can go and ask a second level of like but why right well but why because he didn't have access online to his bank account so when they were saying putting in all those notices he wasn't able to check his mail he didn't get his email you know his uh you know his um you know, he didn't you know, have camera systems at his house where you could see if there was an issue but he didn't have access to those camera systems he didn't check his security right he could, he didn't have personal emails. He couldn't get home to do these things, right? So that, you know, there's all these implications, right? And that that story gets out, and that person and people start to say, eh, you know, maybe I don't want to go to see, right? It's really too hard. It's problematic, whatever. So um, you know, when when you have you know improvements that improve quality of life and and you know greatly being able to call home and have a video conference with your kids uh, and and you know say say good night is a transformative technology that can really improve retention and to also just you know you know improve the whole culture of the technologies are great right and being connected we talked about how we are so interconnected now and that's wonderful but that can also be very damaging when you're not <laughs> totally connected so this was such a wonderful panel discussion. I know we could go on forever, but we're just about at time. So before we wrap up, I'd like to let everybody have the floor with, you know, final parting words or wrap up for today's panel. We'll start with you, Patrick. All right, great. So uh, uh, maybe I'll just tell, you know, kind of talk about my life, you know, pre-COVID. You know, I, uh, I I came to events like this. Usually there were, there were breakfast type events that were starting at like six o'clock in the morning. And, and then, then I went to, uh, you know, work after that. And a lot of times at night I would go out to these types of events. And so I, I just kind of put a plug for events like this and people who set up these things is that I think they're hugely valuable. I mean, I, I can say pre-COVID, I probably went about five a week. I was a little on the, the high end of that. Um, so, but with the value proposition for me, and, you know, obviously you guys haven't worked with me, but I'm probably like way forward leaning to pretty much anyone else in government or especially military i I'm, I'm really pushing the envelope on delivering new technologies you know quickly so uh you know the, the you know one of the value propositions for me was being able to interact with a lot of people like you you know you know before the meetings after the meetings and you know get, getting those little tidbits of you know which which technologies are really mature which ones are not what problem areas what risks i should be aware of um, where industry is going, you know, which company is getting acquired by which company, and what direction they're gonna they're gonna take their technology. Kind of, you know, being in touch with that, you know, from the government side was hugely valuable for me, you know, pre-COVID and kind of led up to a lot of the implementation plans that I had in, in implementing the new technology that that are coming into the Ghost Guard and getting turned on today. Um, so I, I think you know, uh, I highly encourage people to you know start to come to these in-person events, you know. Hearing them on the web and hearing us talk is is valuable, but I, you know a lot of times that networking type thing that happened before and afterwards was was uh, super valuable for me and is definitely one of the one of the things of, of why I feel like I've been able to move a little bit faster in the implementing new technologies. Yeah, we always love to hear about collaboration, how different groups, organizations, agencies talk to each other. There's a lot to be learned from that. Kathy, thank you again for for having me here. Um, I feel like I've learned so much just just sitting in the middle. Um, this has been awesome. Um, you know, I, I think chips is uh, is important. This chips program is important for many different reasons. Um, I think you know this focus on artificial intelligence and kind of deploying this new critical emerging technology um, does directly connect to that importance of securing our uh, security, both uh, you know from a national security standpoint and economic security standpoint. And, you know, I think when we take a step back, at the end of the day, you know, $52 billion is a lot of money. It's a huge amount of money. It's something that we've never done before. Um, but when you look at like the, the semiconductor industry, 
you know, companies are making announcements of like $50 billion and hundred billions of dollars uh, in, in investments. And so it, it sort of puts that uh, amount that we're deploying uh, in, in a different kind of perspective. Um, but I think what that really signifies as far as what we're doing now is that we've never done anything like this before. Um, we typically don't engage in this kind of industrial policy. Um, you know, this is uncharted territory when it comes to trying to onshore um, a really complex uh, industrial sector. Uh, but we have to do it. We don't really have a choice. We need to do it. And a big part of the reason we need to do it is because emerging technologies like artificial intelligence are going to dominate and dictate all of our future enterprises. And so if we choose just to sit on the sidelines and continue to do what we're good at, which is designing chips and you know, making sure there's a new iPhone every two years, uh, we are going to lose the ability to kind of curate that road moving forward, that path moving forward when it comes to these emerging technologies. And so I think conversations like this are really important. I think, you know, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, communities, uh, federal government and the private sector being able to work together to innovate and to, to, to secure the promise of uh, emerging technologies like AI. Um, and I think, you know, the effectiveness of this uh, program implementation from a chip standpoint um, is directly tied to our, our ability to be at the forefront of, um, of artificial intelligence, ensuring that these, uh, you know, generative models and systems uh, are used, again, securely, safely, um, that they do foster innovation and, you know, some of those benefits that um, uh, do keep us safe and do move us into the future. And so, um, really glad to be part of conversations like this and excited to get you to do this work. Yeah, thank you, I And Gopa, we'll end with you. As they said. I think, um, no, I think Ronald is there, so taking the time, so I'm not going to take much time here. I will also conclude, first of all, thank you, Kathleen and Ronald, for bringing all of us together. I now know that ships have connectivity, and it is easy to go sail in ships so that you can connect back. <laughs> Plus, I learned about uh, what the chips program uh, because maybe next time when you go to a Toyota shop, there'll be a car there because of this program. And finally, back to this topic which I was talking about, I want to leave with you with, with that phrase of spending more time in the analysis and the right technology for the right problem and also learn to walk before you run. Thank you. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.